Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Earlier this year, a Chicago man named Reynaldo Munoz had his murder conviction overturned after spending 37 years in prison. His case became the 3,000th known exoneration in the U.S., and those numbers are tracked by the National Registry for Exonerations. The registry's annual report reads the following, quote, this milestone is worth noting, but not celebrating. This figure forces us to stop and think about the individuals who populate the registry. They are more than numbers. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Wrongful convictions hit close to home for some residents of Connecticut. In 2006, a 16-year-old was convicted of shooting and killing a retired grandfather. He was later sent to prison in the state. That man was exonerated in 2015. Nicholas Davidoff's new book is The Other Side of Prospect, a story of violence, injustice, and the American city. The book tells that story, but it also goes deeper by looking at the historical forces that can lead to a wrongful conviction. Later in the hour, we talk to journalist Soledad O'Brien about her career and her new documentary on Rosa Parks. But first, Nicholas Davidoff. He's author of five books, and he's been an Art for Justice fellow and a Pulitzer Prize finalist. Nicholas, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Your book, The Other Side of Prospect, centers on New Haven, Connecticut, and it certainly is not the first book written about New Haven. You know, Robert Dahl famously wrote about the city in 1961. But this book is arguably one of the most insightful books and also one of the most disturbing accounts of life here in New Haven. For our readers who have not yet read the book, give them a brief synopsis about your focus. Sure. There have been many books written about New Haven, and that's because in writing about New Haven for a lot of writers, you're really writing about the country. New Haven for both demographers and writers and historians has typically been kind of a representative city that it's a small place, but it's a remarkably diverse city in both its virtues and also its problems. It reflects so much about American cities. And there's a lawyer in New Haven named Michael Jefferson who grew up in New York City. And he said that it was only when he came to New Haven that he could really see the urgency of American problems and issues because New York was too big. I grew up here. I was a, a child here and I had a I had a single mom, you know, and she was a school teacher and we lived in the first floor of a rented two family house. And, you know, there was struggle for her to some degree, but I didn't really get a full sense of what other people's experiences were until I went out into the city of New Haven. And um, the way I did that was by playing baseball. And where my book really began, I would say in lots of ways, is as a child playing baseball all over New Haven, because most kids just stay in their neighborhood. But I, on my bicycle, would go everywhere because as you advance through the leagues, you have to go to every neighborhood. You know how it is when you play youth sports, you know all the kids you play with, you know the kids you play against, you know everybody who comes to the games regularly. And even if it's children, we don't talk about it. You have a very good sense as a child 
you think of what other people's lives might a little bit be like. And it just seemed really confusing to me that, that this juxtaposition where I was right here and just a short walk away was another world and people growing up, children just like me growing up with such radically different experiences. And I remember standing out there on the infield, this very dusty field and there's glass on the field and stuff. And I'm just thinking, you know, it was very formal in my mind. Why should this be? How could this be? What is, you know, and I just found it confusing. And ultimately that's what I wanted to come back and write about. I wanted to come back and write about in effect place. Like what is the effective place and neighboring places on a child? What does it mean to be a kid growing up in one place and have such a radically different place so close at hand? And that is a big American experience. Again, New Haven is just one city that reflects an experience that is many, many children across the country. The title is The Other Side of Prospect. And for those unfamiliar with the city, Prospect is this street that not only is adjacent to Yale University, this sort of world-class institution of higher learning, but is adjacent to a number of predominantly Black and Brown residents of the city who often get overlooked, but as you talk about in the book, often get targeted for the kinds of disinvestments that lead to these radical inequalities that also shape the future for young people, particularly as you talk about in this book for young African-American men in the city who are trying to find their way proximate to wealth and yet in the center of so much challenge. You focus in this book about a young man named Bobby. Why tell his story as you are telling this broader story, not just of New Haven, but of American cities? What I just described is kind of, it's a subject and it's thematic, it's topical, but it isn't a story. And nonfiction writers tell stories. And I didn't have a way to talk about this sort of problem of post-industrial neighborhoods, right? Because the neighborhood New Hallville that we're talking about was once a flourishing American neighborhood when the factories that supported the neighborhood were doing well. But so I came back to New Haven. It's a small enough city that when people hear about what you're doing, they might get in touch with you. And one day I heard from a, a criminal lawyer and he said, I've heard about what you're doing and I'm interested. And I happen to have a client who I think his personal experience speaks to what I think you're trying to do. And so long story short is that I, you know, I went to talk with him and he described a, a client who'd been a teenager in New Hallville who had eventually confessed three different times in three different ways. The lawyer said falsely that it, the confession had been coerced into confessing to committing a murder on a New Hallville side street. Since 16, he'd been in prison and he'd been in prison for most of the rest of his life. And I, of course, was no expert. I had no idea. Well, nobody's an expert, but I had no idea whether this was true or not. But I could, I could tell that this was a very provocative situation and that it seemed revealing in part because his alleged co-defendant had actually gone to trial, hadn't taken a plea as Bobby had, and had been acquitted. I, I soon enough went to meet Bobby. And what struck me instantly about Bobby, and as I talked to him over time, was that he... He was another kid who rode his bicycle all, new, all over New Haven, and he was a really, really observant person. He was compassionate, sympathetic, and also, I think, shrewd about the world in such a way that not only could he observe what was going on around him and take it in, but he could do it in a way that was 
true to the circumstances, which is really ironic if you think about it, because somebody, a false confession sends one to prison. And I'm describing somebody who has, his lawyer would say, and now having known him for all these years, I would say too, is one of the more honest people I've ever met. You know, everyone's fascinated with true crime stories. You don't sensationalize this at all. You are giving a clear, full picture of who people are, not just at the moment of crisis and tension, but how they came to be, what their paths were to New Haven and to Connecticut, and telling that family history, that family story, and in many ways making it clear that the promises of the Great Migration, of moving from the South to the North of this land of plentiful opportunities, there's a generational stop to that because of these structural factors. Why did you think it was important to tell this family story of the paths to New Haven and how that also created opportunities and in some cases challenges for people? Any history in any given moment, no matter what you're talking about, in this case, I'm a lot, I'm talking about gun violence, is that it isn't just grounded in its particular moment, but there's a legacy of history that informs whatever's going on at any given time. You're right. I could have just written a true crime account, and that would have been in many ways more easier to consume and a lot easier to write. What I really wanted to do was I wanted to make the main character of the book, The Neighborhood. And I wanted in some way for the people who were part of the story to be representatives, not just of their own lives, but of many lives in a neighborhood that really is an iconic American neighborhood. The Newhallville neighborhood, if you go back to the mid-19th century, every wave, a significant wave of immigration that's come through the Eastern United States came through Newhallville. And it was at one point an Irish neighborhood, and then it was an Italian neighborhood, and German, Eastern European. They were coming for work. It's only the last wave of immigration to that neighborhood, which, as you say, is the Great Migration from the South, where there begins to be trouble. And at first, there's no trouble at all. The first generation of people who are coming up from the South, if you drive around New Haven, you'll see South Carolina license plates everywhere still. And that's because there's a deep connection between the the Deep South and, well, North Carolina too, but and, and the New Hallville neighborhood. And for the first generations that were there when the factories were still doing well, it was, it was really a thriving and wonderful neighborhood. And all sorts of people told me wonderful stories about a neighborhood that you can't see anymore, but which they remember very vividly. And yet then when things don't go as well, the factories begin to either go elsewhere or just to close, trouble comes when the work goes away. And that's really the story of the neighborhood. So the people who kept coming from the Deep South later generations, they arrive and there is an opportunity. And what we're really talking about then is a community where historically it had been a place where people who had limited education or who didn't have any skills yet could acquire jobs that were well-paying enough so that they could buy their first house, they could buy a car, and more, they could provide, as they themselves said over and over, a better life for their kids. And that sounds cliche, but it really was true. And the person who is murdered in this particular story lives exactly that life. He, he, he comes from South Carolina to the neighborhood. He moves up and out. He has one house out in West Haven, and then he has an even bigger house. He's doing really well. He's raising his kids and so forth. And, and then, you know, when he comes back to visit as a widower, his girlfriend in the neighborhood, he's on a side street and a couple of kids run up on him. And those kids are from a later generation of Southern families where there isn't any opportunity and where this just in envelops them in all sorts of problems. 
that phrase, trouble comes when the work goes away, suggests that it's more than just an individual decision, right? We, we can have individual responsibility. We also have to think about structural accountability here, that this isn't just a situation for this one victim of a senseless crime, not just about Bobby, who is eventually convicted of that murder, but it's also about a, a broader structural institutional failure. Some people may argue it's, it's intentional and others may say it's just sort of a result of that progression. What's happening in the neighborhood, in the city at the time, that when Bobby is swept up in this, that made you see as you were having these conversations, you know, did this young person even have a chance given all that was happening at the time? I would just say that in communities where there's real struggle, first of all, most people deplore gun violence and don't want it to exist. And most people aren't involved at all. It's a very small group of people who are involved and they're generally involved as both victims and perpetrators on any given day. And they generally get into it because of exposure to different kinds of trauma, first and foremost, exposure themselves to gun violence. But gun violence, I would say, is a rare, even in the most violent neighborhoods, it's still rare. And it is the most extreme expression on a progression of many responses, typically to different kinds of trauma. Sometimes it can provide power in a community where there aren't any other sources of agency among young people. This is a tragic fact. But most people respond to circumstances where they feel frustrated or thwarted or angry in many, many different kinds of ways. And I don't need to recite them all, but you can imagine anything from sex or love or family to things that take you away from life for a moment, like food or alcohol or drugs or things like that. But I think of after all the time I spent doing this, I just think of gun violence as having to be grouped there. You know, I talk to a lot of people who are in prisons from the neighborhood. And, and, and I remember one, one young person saying to me, you know, that he'd never met someone who was straight bad, that it always came from somewhere where people made these choices, which then when you go to the prison and talk to people, they're very young, they're, they're caught up. And then they spend some, most of the people I met are just spending their lives full of regret. They can't imagine how this happened to them. In the moment, it seemed like the only choice because they were afraid or, you know, that they were going to be shot themselves or things. But so what I would say is everything that I'm describing is a community that feels isolated from opportunity. And when you mention Prospect Street, Prospect is a street that is like many such streets across the country. It's kind of an invisible railroad track. And there are more formal divides in cities like Kansas City, uh, Cleveland. Every, you, can, you can see this phenomenon all across America. We're right there. There are on one side, there are people who are just going about their day, who are living, you know, everybody has their problems, right? But they're in effect living a good life. And on the other side, there are many good things to the life of people who are living on the other side of the hill, but the opportunities are so much more, less. So what that means, if you're a young person, it doesn't mean that you can't succeed. It just means that it's much harder to do so. And that the people who do succeed, the people who have big lives, who we hear about, like my friend Dwayne Betts is a good example, this is very rare. As I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm thinking of a young man named Henry Green, who was also shot on the street in New Hallville and sadly passed away a few years ago. But Henry Green would talk about what he saw in the eyes of the person who shot him 
and seeing something familiar there, that sense of desperation, that sense of what do I do when yes, success, however we define that is possible, but seems so elusive for people living in particular areas when the challenges seem so great. At the same time, someone will be listening to our conversation and ask, but wait a minute, why did Bobby confess to a crime three times that he said he did not do You know, what is the system supposed to do if a person says that they committed this awful crime? Help our listeners understand how and why that happens, not just in Bobby's case, but you also make the point in the book, this is part of a broader problem that we see, whether we're talking about, um, you know, young men in Central Park, or we're talking about young people in New Hallville. Why would someone confess to a crime they didn't commit? I think one of the things that happens in a community as Bobby and the young people he was growing up with to describe it is that you just, by virtue of growing up in that particular place, you are probably given less careful observation about who you are by, for example, police. This is not all police, but it just did seem to be true that kids in that community were regarded with a certain amount of distance that it's kind of it's 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 actually scrutiny coupled with distance in other words they might be given more police attention and yet less particular specific attention so people wouldn't really know who bobby was and i would say that in a in successful community policing and there have been plenty of New Haven police chiefs over time who would agree with this, that if you know your community, these kinds of mistakes are far less likely to happen. But if you don't know who you're dealing with and word gets out, maybe even from the people who actually did the crime, that somebody else did it, you become more vulnerable. And if you get into a room with two police officers and you actually happen to be a pretty ethical kid who actually believes in the righteousness of a criminal justice system, and you believe that eventually over time, as these two people are really, these two grown men are wearing you out and you're there for hour after hour after hour, and you believe that ultimately the system will do the right thing, that it will find out what really happened. And you may know something about what actually happened because everybody in the neighborhood knows, But you also know that you could get into a whole lot of trouble and also your family could get into a whole lot of trouble if you snitch. Then you're going to make just a decision. If the the people who are coercing this confession tell you, if you don't tell us that you did it, you're going to spend the rest of your life in jail and you'll never see your family again. It would be prison. But if you tell us, you'll just get, you know, you'll just get probation. After a while, when you've been sitting there for a really long time and you're 16 years old and you're really scared and you're really worn down, you might make a terrible decision. And that decision is born of that same kind of vulnerability, right? Comes from inexperience. A child who was raised in different circumstances, first of all, wouldn't be there alone. And second of all, would have the wherewithal not to go for that. Just to say, you know, I don't wanna talk to you unless I have a lawyer or a parent here. But that didn't happen. Nicholas Davidoff is author of The Other Side of Prospect, a story of violence and justice in the American city. When we return, Nicholas talks about life after prison for Bobby, the young man who was wrongfully convicted. And later we talk to journalist and filmmaker Soledad O'Brien. This is Disrupted. Stay with us.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later in the show, Soledad O'Brien will talk about her career and her new documentary about the life of Rosa Parks. But now let's get back to our conversation with Nicholas Davidoff. He's author of The Other Side of Prospect, a story of violence, injustice, and the American city. Before the break, we heard about Bobby, the wrongfully convicted young man who went to prison for murder as a teenager. Ask Nicholas about life for Bobby and others like him after being released from incarceration. You couldn't find probably too many more sympathetic people than Bobby who are go to prison as a child uh, and, and, and then eventually are, you know, are, are released. The case is overturned. But that makes it to me all the more troubling and also poignant that when he comes back out into the world for what is called reentry, does his experience doesn't really diverge that much from the experience of people who are coming out who may have committed a murder, you know? Um, and I guess what I would say is that reentry is a very, very under, what well, it's, it's not a well-known, but it, American phenomenon for, especially given how significant an American phenomenon it is. There are millions of people who are coming out of prisons. And I think we could all agree that their success out in the world is only to the benefit of society. We want people to do well. You don't want recidivism. You want, in fact, for them to be contributing members of their families and their communities and their cities. And that just lifts everybody up, right? But what happens is, is that People go into prison and say you go into prison and you're 20 years old and you spend 15 years there. Your experience of the outer world, you're still 20 years old in effect. Bobby, when he comes out, his experience of the world, he's still 16. So what does he want to do, for example? He wants what 16-year-olds want. He wants to get his driver's license. He wants to date. He doesn't. Suddenly, he's being asked to live an adult life. But he doesn't know what he's good at. He hasn't been educated yet. He And part of what education does is it gives you time to get a sense of yourself in relation to the world to gain experience, right? And if you don't have that kind of experience, you may really founder. This was a, a really hard thing to watch over the next years as Bobby tried really, really hard to find his way to have not just a career. He wanted a career, but he also just wanted a decent first job. And I can't imagine a more sympathetic person to be hired. And he couldn't get a job pushing pushing all of the shopping carts together in a parking lot for, you know, for 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 a big box store. And why? Because he had a scarlet P, you know, prison. And this was to me another re- really sort of confusing thing. But 
it's also just true that it made me think a lot about the relationship between communities where there are many incarcerated people and affect a pipeline between a particular community and the prison. And um, certainly that was true for New Hallville. And um, it's just like, you know, the problems of post-industrial America are really, I think, understudied. And, you know, this is this is a, a very unhappy culmination of many, of many uh, different kinds of problems, I would say. It's like the worst result that somebody does a, does a terrible thing and ends up in prison or doesn't do a terrible thing, but ends up in prison for it. As someone who is not from New Haven, but lives here now, reading through your book, there were so many familiar names and so many familiar people, even in the acknowledgments. And I wonder if you had any concern or reservation about capturing this story and this experience because people are so interconnected were you concerned about a backlash or about whether it could create harm given all of the vulnerability? And if so, how did you push through that? I think you'd have to be a pretty um, naive writer not to imagine all kinds of, you know, potential bad things that could happen in the world and that in some way you could contribute to them even unknowingly. But I, I felt pretty strongly that I should listen to the people that I was talking with. And I talked, you know, I talked with over 500 people. I mean, I I would interview the whole city if I could have, because I felt as though this is something that I've been thinking about ever since I'd been a child. It was a problem that felt to me both pervasive and ongoing. And I did also think about, for me, the most serious risk of doing such a project was that in one way or another, unintentionally that it could, couldn't somehow encourage more violence. And so I talked to a lot of people about this. I talked to young people about it who are involved in violence. I talked with, you know, violence interrupters, you know, you know, these would be social, in effect, social service workers. I talked to people in law enforcement, lots and lots of police officers and so forth. And what I, what I eventually decided to do was not to use the names of people who are really caught up in violence, just because it felt to me is that that could be the really provocative thing. And this was this was the advice that I got over and over again. So that 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 was something that I thought about. It's also true that violence does happen among young people in new ways since social media has existed, right? I think for people in law enforcement sometimes can't understand how what they would describe as the most trivial instigating events lead to such horrific results. And yet, if you are a young person and you don't have a lot and what you have, then much of what you have is your dignity and your sense of your your own pride and so forth. And if that sort of gets misplaced, apparently small things can have such enormous and devastating consequences. And what can happen is that something stray might be said on social media and somebody else will respond and it goes back and forth. And all of a sudden, you know, there is a kids call that kind of shooting a disrespect. And if you just look at it as the reflection of that escalating back and forth on social media, that is not at all how I would look at it. I would look at it as going back to the mid 19th century and examining the history of a neighborhood and beginning to see the legacy of the past in present troubling events. 
when you talked about Henry Green, you know, there was a documentary film made about him and Bobby and I went to see it and Bobby had to leave because he found it so upsetting. But I think what you were describing and what he was describing is in the eyes of the person who shot him was a certain lack of hope and that just sort of a kind of complex desperation that was also numbed. And over over again, this was my experience too, and talking to people who'd been very young, who'd got caught up in violence, was that there, there was a hopelessness, how after a certain time, if you don't have any hope, it makes you angrier and angrier and angrier. And there's a conversation in the book where former New Haven police chief, Anthony Campbell, and now he's the chief of the Yale police, talks about this and how he saw it over and over, both as a child himself growing up in Harlem and then as a police officer, how he felt, and Bobby feels, and many other people do too, that a lack of hope is only exacerbated when you're in one place where you feel there is nothing out there for you. And just over the lip of that hill, you can see what seems to you just everything that a young person might hope for. And again, most people don't respond that way. Most people who feel a lack of hope about their own circumstances relative to other people's, they don't commit violence. As we come to the close of our time together, I want to take you back four years to something you probably don't remember. But four years ago, I met you for the first time actually at Cheshire Correctional, which is a maximum security prison, with Dwayne Betts. And it was Black History Month of all times. And Dwayne and I were there to talk to the people at Cheshire and, you know, part of a true program and everything else. I remember driving away and I'd been to Cheshire before. I had taught at Cheshire. This wasn't the first experience there. But I remember driving back to New Haven in complete silence because it weighed on me of what the lack of hope can mean, what possibility can mean, and then what was my responsibility in all of that? And wondering, what do I do? What do I do with this experience? It, ha- it has changed me, but I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with this. When you think about the work that you've done, for this book, the work that you're doing more broadly. What do you say to listeners who say, okay, what's the next step? Not that you have to solve all these things, but how do you move through these understandings now to think about what you're called to do? Um, My experience was actually remarkably like yours, driving away from prison every time. Not far from that prison, there's an ice cream place. And no matter what time of day it was, I would find myself pulling in because I just... I don't know. It's really upsetting. And, you know, you wanted a little sweetness in your life. And um, I'll tell you a few things that that I sort of took away from my experience. One is that problems in one neighborhood are really the problems of a city. And I feel as though there would be less gun violence generally if the whole city was involved. In other words, if in, in different ways is if this was of concern, not just to neighbors or not just to law enforcement, but if everybody took it more personally. And that sounds incredibly naive and high-minded, right? But it can happen. It can happen that, you know, that leading institutions just say no more. Like we could talk a lot about Yale University, which is, you know, obviously what makes New Haven well-known across the world. And I've always felt that 
Yale does so much that is so beautiful in the world, right? I mean, just look at the response to COVID, you know, how many different people associated with Yale did so much to advance the cause of thinking about this sudden huge medical problem in our country. But these are problems right in the university's backyard, and they're problems in the backyard of universities all across this country. I mean, it's not that dissimilar from you know, from Johns Hopkins or the University of Pennsylvania in West Philadelphia, which actually Penn actually does a a better job than most places. But what I would say is that why isn't this a subject of research? Here's this big American problem and one where you are uniquely and sadly positioned to do something about it. Why wouldn't Yale have the biggest program in post-industrial studies of anywhere? I mean, this is something that can be done. Or if you talk about law enforcement, right? On Law enforcement is only responsive. You know, law enforcement really only can do something after after a, a terrible event has happened. I guess if I took one thing away, one lesson away over and over again from this project, it was the necessity of regarding things with a, with a level of detail and complication that you get in trouble when you generalize. You get in trouble when you begin to see people or you begin to see phenomenon in some sort of, again, generalized way. And what happens with this one per young person happens because he is not known. I think if you make the attempt generally to get to know people, to regard people as individuals, and to listen to them, and this is whether you're a police officer, whether you're a teacher, whoever it is, if you make that effort, things seem to go better. So when I talk about the other side of prospect, right, I'm actually talking about, at its core, a great speech that was given by Martin Luther King which is called the other America and how they're the, all these unknown Americas to one another. And it's just, I mean, again, it's, it's, I, as I hear myself talking, it sounds almost appallingly high-minded or something, but I really believe this because I saw it myself as a child. When you move around your own city and when you get to know all parts of your city, when your whole city becomes your neighborhood, it's just a better place to be. And when you create these boundaries and barriers and so forth, it is. It just impedes not only the lives of the people who perhaps are most excluded from opportunity, but everybody's lives are worse. When you have a downtown where everybody's going there and everybody's just sort of mixing, people have very different experiences. They have different levels of income and so forth, but it's that it's that interplay, it's that mixing among people that I just believe. And there's a lot of social science to back this up. I mean, if you read Raj Chetty, for example, just talking about what it means when people from different communities mix it's just a better it's just a better place i think that there there you have law enforcement not solving crime you have crime sort of disappearing because people just feel better about themselves most crime you can't generalize right but most crime especially violent crime comes from a place of unhappiness people who feel more accepted who feel more hopeful who feel more optimistic you mean that's really the better that's the better solution to violence than just anything a police officer can do Nicholas Davidoff is a Pulitzer Prize finalist. His most recent book is The Other Side of Prospect, a story of violence, injustice, and the American city. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Coming up, we talk to journalist Soledad O'Brien about how her new documentary about Rosa Parks could change the narrative of this civil rights icon. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. 
she was considered a threat. Espousing radical views. If they could see her talking about the Republic of New Africa, they're out there with the Panthers, then they would understand the real Rosa Parks, but they might have been just a little frightened. She has been an activist for over three decades. For Ms. Parks, it was especially dangerous. Fighting on issues that are still very much at the forefront. She never gave up. She lit the torch to the next generation. That's audio from a new documentary called The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. It dives into Parks' lesser-known activism and action that started long before she refused to give up her seat on a bus. It's produced by our next guest, Soledad O'Brien. O'Brien is a journalist, documentarian, and a former news anchor. She's earned three Emmy Awards, a Peabody Award, and a DuPont Award for her reporting. On November 15th, she'll be moderating a conversation for the Connecticut Forum with U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Soledad, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And Rosa Parks is a good person to talk about when you talk about disrupting uh, because she was the the face of that uh, in in many ways. Let's talk about another disruptor, and that is Soledad O'Brien. You have... (laughs) curated this amazing career over multiple platforms against this backdrop of an ever-changing media space. And what it seems to, to bind all of that together is this commitment to what you've called telling stories that reflect the complex American narrative. What is that complex American narrative? And why do you feel called to tell those stories? I think the complex American narrative doesn't always center white people. And I think in TV news, the American narrative almost always centers white people, right? So if we talk about evangelicals, there's evangelicals and black evangelicals, right? So wink, wink, we know that when someone's talking about evangelicals or a reporter, that they're talking about white evangelicals. And um, and we see it all the time. That's one of 10 zillion million examples of this default identification if we're talking about middle-class voters, if we're talking about Midwestern values, if we're talking about suburban moms, right? I would say wink, 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 but it's not even wink, wink, wink. It is, um, here's what people are referring to. The other day, Sarah Palin was talking about uh, voters and she said, you know, suburban, white suburban women go to the grocery store and they they care about their children. So clearly the, the takeaway is, Black suburban women, Asian suburban women, Latina suburban women don't go to grocery stores and don't care about their kids. And so we have seen not just in the media, but I think certainly as politics kind of writes the narrative of who is an American, who belongs, you know, whose story gets to be told, it often centers white people. And then everybody else maybe gets a month or a week or a a special celebration. And I would argue that the American narrative is really complicated and it involves all of us. And there's a whole bunch of Black people in the Midwest and a whole bunch of Black people in the suburban America. And and anybody who doesn't know that probably shouldn't be reporting um, because it's been the case for a long time. Um, it, it's I've been in the business a long time, so it gets very frustrating when there's a shorthand when I know better. 
part of your frustration that you've talked about very candidly is feeling constrained in some ways and wanting to push for not just telling diverse stories, talking about the realities of American life, but also a dedicated commitment to empowering more diverse voices to be the storytellers. What has leading your own production company allowed you to do that perhaps you couldn't do before or didn't have the same level of support before? Hire Black people. <laughs> Literally hire. Uh, our, we did a doc series that actually won a bunch of awards called Black and Missing. Uh, it's uh, streaming on HBO right now. All women of color directors. And, and, and my entire career, people have said, we just can't find any. I just, you know, listen, I, I want to hire diverse people. I do. I just can't find it. It's a pipeline and, problem. It's right. It's a pipeline. I heard that my very first year at WBZ TV in Boston. You know, it's it's not that we're not good people. It's a pipeline issue. There's just no one in the pipeline. And, you know, year after year, you hear that. So you you start believing there is a pipeline issue and then you sort of start realizing it's more of like a bull issue for us. I, I'm a, we have a small company, 15 employee. I mean, it's tiny. And we're able to do it, partly because of our commitment. People trust us. And also because we set out to do it. We set out to find women of color who are going to be producing and directing the stock. <laughs> and so we keep looking. And guess what? There's a whole bunch of them who are super talented, award-winning, remarkable. They all know each other. So when someone says, oh, I just started another project, I can't help you. But here are three names of a bunch of other amazing women who could do this. It's just tapping into networks. I mean, it's no more complicated than that. So yeah, it gets a little, um, it does get a little frustrating when you know, there's a million and nine excuses for why you can't have diverse teams. And often it seems to me to be centered around this idea of like, but I'm a good person, right? I mean, I'm a good person. So it's not that I'm personally not trying to have diversity. And then they tick off all these excuses. And, and I used to tell people like, if we were, were talking about refrigerators, right? We, we wouldn't have this issue. We would just know, you know, if, if, if there were issues with the refrigerator and there was a big company trying to get it to a certain level, you know, they would be able to tell us exactly what is the problem? Where, where, what's going wrong? Why is this refrigerator six months after it's hired decides to quit and go take another job, metaphorically? So it gets very frustrating when we pretend to not understand how to solve issues of diversity. Step one, obviously, is go to the places where diverse people are. Find other diverse people and ask them about their friends. I mean, it sounds so silly, right? I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because it's, it's kind of absurd, you know? But you'd be amazed at the number of times, you know, that people continue to do the same strategies in hiring. And you're like, well, get, you know, I mean, I don't have to tell you. Uh, so yeah, we have found that having access to great um, resources, especially when it comes to diversity, opens up stories for us, opens up audiences for us, opens up great talent for us. And we've had some really, really wonderful projects. Before we talk about the documentary, I want to talk about an issue that's happening right now in this media space and makes it clear that you can't treat people as if they are unicorns, like there's only one, but it's also not enough to get people in the door if you're not committed to their experience there. 
That is the very abrupt decision by MSNBC to sever ties with Tiffany Cross, who was the host of their very popular show. That decision was made a few days before the midterm election, has engendered backlash from some leaders who have demanded a meeting. But so let add, if I'm honest, I am surprised and yet remarkably unsurprised that there hasn't been more of a public uproar or a public response to this. What's your take on this? So it's always hard to tell when you're talking about people's individual personnel decisions. But I'm not surprised because, of course, you know, she had a show that was very popular. And Tiffany was a person who who centered, you know, uh, people of color, right? She made sure her guests were Black people. She made sure that the topics they were covering were. And what she found is what we find when we do matter of fact, that you can do really well. We are the number one uh, public affairs show now. And we are, our tagline is stories as diverse as America. Like we're very straightforward. We lead with it. And so I think people are sometimes stunned by that. Like, you know, but I thought diversity was that just little add on at the end. It's both shocking and it's not because there's a whole list of people of color. Um, and there's so few. I mean, if you look at Latinas in newsrooms, I mean, the number of Latinas in newsrooms is going down from where it was 10 years ago. Uh, that Asians in newsrooms, everyone discovered that they didn't have enough Asians in their newsrooms when you had all this Asian hate crimes and they didn't have any people who could speak uh, Chinese to go out and interview native speakers who maybe weren't fluent in English, right? So it's not just onboarding people. It has to be about supporting them and then helping them be successful. You know, it's, a, it's about a pathway for every employee, frankly, not just your employees of color. Let's talk about this documentary, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. So timely, given all of the struggles that are happening in this country around politics, around democracy, around not just telling diverse stories, but telling stories in their fullness and beyond sort of our popular myths that we have. You have said that you like this story because it challenges that narrative that people have around Rosa Parks. Why release it now? And what's the narrative that you're challenging? I think it made sense now, especially in light of, I mean, Rosa Parks' mission was about voting rights, and a lot of what she did in her lifetime was to bring justice and fairness to Black people in this country. So I think the time is perfectly right. But I think also the time is right because people just don't know. Even the New York Times, when she died, the New York Times called her the accidental you're like, there was literally nothing accidental about Rosa Parks was a lot of things. Accidental was not one of them. And, and in our documentary, which is based on uh, the book by Jean Theo Harris, which is an excellent book, I, same name, I highly recommend people um, read the book because it's just fascinating. Our, our two directors, uh, Yoruba Richin and Johanna Hamilton, really wanted to kind of dig into who was Rosa Parks from her childhood and beyond? Like, what was the arc of her life? What did she believe in? What did she support? Was she this woman who one day was just tired? You learn pretty quickly that that's just not true, that that's, that that's a comforting narrative, but it's just not accurate at all. You know, she said many times, and she would even say, I've told people, and they just don't want to listen, that she was no more tired than she was on any other day, that, that she was tired of being treated badly, essentially. Uh, and that it was the memory of Emmett Till that is what motivated her, right? That's a very different thing than, you know, it was a long day and my feet hurt and I just didn't want to give up my seat to say, I knew that what Emmett Till died for had to be more meaningful and we had to take that and run with it, right? Like that's a completely different kind of tired. And yet journalists missed it time and time again. And, and I'll come back to, you know, again, 
it's very easy to miss stories if you're a reporter who's not actually listening to the right words that 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 should signal something to you. Uh, me as well, you know, if it's something that I'm not familiar with, uh, I can miss it very easily. So it's why you need to have a lot of people around the table who can say, you know, I know this community, I get this story, I understand what this is, what's being said here. Amid all of that, I want to ask you this question because you deal with very difficult topics. What is it that gives you hope, even in this complicated, contentious political space? What is it that gives you hope? I've been tweeting a lots of content from Jean Thea Harris's book, which talks about obstacles to voting, right? Literally, it's Rosa Parks talking about how many times she had to vote and then basically have to take a, you know, pay a poll tax essentially and, and be quizzed on whether, you know, did she really have the ability to, to vote? And I think it's, it's easy to be inspired by people who had to work so hard to do things, right? I mean, you and I could be sitting here talking about all the people who gave up because it would make perfect sense. You'd be like, it makes absolutely rational, perfect sense to say, oh my God, obstacle 99, I'm just, I'm, I just can't do it. And so I love hearing and reading and sharing the stories of people who, who didn't give up, even when maybe the smart thing to do or the easy thing to do was to give up. So I, I do, I find that just absolutely fascinating. And that's probably one of the things that I think is most hopeful uh, in the entire documentary, right? Which is, it's the deconstruction of a, a person's life, how they were born, their experiences that shape them into who they are, but also what made them never, ever quit, even as everyone was getting her story wrong. One of the women in our current sense who has not given up and is committed in so many ways to justice is Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. And you will be in conversation with her for the Connecticut Forum. What should people expect who are attending that forum? Yeah, you know, I, I've interviewed Sonia Sotomayor a couple of times. And I, I mean, it's a very interesting, black, crazy time uh, in the country uh, for justice in the Supreme Court. <laughs> Uh, and so I'm looking forward to a conversation that really tries to delve into where we are and what the court looks like. You know, we, as you know, the court never, the justices will never discuss a case that's before the court right now, right? We're not going to sit down and chat about affirmative action and, you know, what she's thinking. It just does not work like that. But I, I think there's so many big issues to discuss. So I'm really looking forward to having that conversation with her. Soledad O'Brien is a journalist and CEO of Soledad O'Brien Productions. Her latest documentary is The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. Soledad, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Soledad O'Brien will be moderating a conversation for the Connecticut Forum with U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor on November 15th. You can find more information about that event at our website. It's ctpublic.org disrupted. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Emily Cherish, and Katie Talarski. Our interns are Taylor Doyle and Jacob Gannon. You can listen to all of the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.